following sermon is from Faith Bible Church, located in Murrieta, California. More information about Faith Bible Church is available at www.faith-bible.net. Okay, so that's the third time I've seen it, and I'm always amazed at how good it is. Uh, you would think that they bought it somewhere, but Patrick Levis and Daniel Reimer put it all together. It's just way impressive. Uh, so I think they're going to be available for purchase on Amazon Prime. No, I'm, I have no idea. So, but they, uh, they've done a great job so far. I'm always excited to see what each week holds. Uh, they're doing them through the whole series as we're, if you're new with us, uh, continuing a, really a look through the summer at God's faithful love for his people through the story of the Old Testament. Uh, and so it's been encouraging so far, and hopefully today is as well. Uh, I, I don't know what your week's been like, what your year's been like. There is a day that will be etched into my mind, I think, for the rest of my life, and it is January 23rd of this year. You may remember that time period. It's when we had the heavy storms, uh, all the rain came, the heavy winds came, and uh, it was a Monday. I woke up, we were heading to SeaWorld that day, I uh, woke up kind of before the sun had fully risen, went to the shower, and, uh, you know, hit the lever, nothing came out. It's not like cold water came out, like nothing came out, which is odd. Uh, we hadn't lived there that long, so I thought, well, I'll go around, I'll check somewhere else, uh, and sure enough, the water from my house was up, out everywhere. Maybe it's a, I looked out the window, there was no flooding, which I was very thankful for, uh, and so I thought, maybe it's a neighborhood thing, so I got dressed, went outside, and as I went outside, I, I saw this site. I've got a picture of it here on the screen. It was a tree in my yard that had blown over uh, more than 50 feet, uh, and uh, it was incredible. Uh, I was instantly awake. The sun had not risen, uh, but after about another five to 10 minutes, I discovered uh, that it had taken out a water line in my backyard, uh, which had happened in the middle of the night uh, during one of those big storms, and uh, a very kind soul had turned the water off uh, to my property, saving me hundreds of dollars for it flooding uh, overnight. But we just moved in, and I had no idea where irrigation valves were, and uh, this uh, was terrifying, which meant that the water to our house was just permanently off for a while till we could get it all sorted out. So we did what any reasonable family would do. We got out wet wipes, and then we went to SeaWorld. Uh, <laughs> so what are you going to do? Uh, once we got home, though, I was confronted with the reality uh, that I still had no water to my house. Uh, and this began the uh, localized four-day drought in the Plesnik household, where uh, there was no water to be had uh, anywhere. Uh, and uh, I'll spare you the details, but I will confess that this was a time when we began to question our life choices. Uh, what had taken us to this point, uh, where we were living without the ability to brush our teeth, do laundry, clean dishes, and shower, or most importantly, flush. That, that is uh, a long-treasured ability. Uh, we have struggled with infertility. We've had a miscarriage. I've had cancer. I've been fired from a job early in life. I've quit a job due to conscience. Uh, and at no time can I remember Beth and I reconsidering what decisions had led us to this point in our lives, as much as that time when we had no water. Uh, I, I don't know what 
challenges you face, but given enough time, most everybody comes to a point where they kind of look at where they are and they think, how did I get here? What, what led me to this point? Now, sometimes we look at the past and we have some concerns. Sometimes we look at where we are and we're unclear about it. And often we look ahead and the future seems a bit cloudy or we're anxious about it. Or sometimes it even seems a bit perilous and dangerous. And that situation, those feelings are exactly where Israel is right now as they're on the edge of entering the promised land. That those very feelings about the uncertainty of the future, that, that is where Israel is. So we're working our way through the Old Testament, seeing the faithful love of our king. Uh, we heard last week Sean teach about Noah and the flood. And then after that, what happens is Noah's sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, they begin to repopulate the earth and they become father to many nations. That the uh, story of Genesis continues in chapters 10 and 11, describing how that happens. And from the tribe of Shem, we see God select Abram. He's a Chaldean who lives in Ur, and, and God chooses him to make into the nation of Israel. And he promises him, as Patrick alluded in the video, <clears throat> that he would make his descendants great into a great nation. He would give him land and he would bless all of the world through him. This is a unilateral covenant, a one-sided covenant where he says, I'm going to do this. You don't have to do anything. I'm going to do this. And the remainder of the book of Genesis is about the fulfillment of that promise by God. Abram would come to be known as Abraham. The descendants of Abraham would come to be known as Israelites and then Jews. And where we pick up today is after the Exodus, after 40 days of wandering, they are on the edge of the promised land. What the Bible describes as a valley, which you can see on the screen here, we're up at the big red star, is a valley that's actually set up on a big bluff. There's mountains on both sides, it's elevated, and then Israel is down lower. And they are perched up on what we would know as the Golan Heights. Uh, if you're older, you remember when Syria owned it and they were lobbing rockets into Israel occasionally. Israel didn't really like that, so they attacked, took over that area, turned it into farmland, because it has this amazing overview of Israel. And this is where Moses and the nation are gathered about to enter the promised land, ready to conquer, having already secured the area around them. And Moses, in the book of Deuteronomy, is in the last weeks of his life. There's only a few weeks left, and the book of Deuteronomy covers those, and it's the time in which he gives three sermons to Israel. He, de he describes in, in chapters 1 to 4, his first sermon, where he looks back and describes God's faithfulness to Israel as a nation, how he had cared for them and walked with them and provided for them and led them. And then in chapters 5 to 28 is the second sermon when Moses calls them now to obey God in their new life. Where they're heading into, he says, you must obey God. The third sermon, chapters 29 and 30, he lays out the consequences and the blessings. Whether you, of whatever choice that they were going to make. The, the blessings and the curses that would follow them depending on how they chose to live. This, this is where we are in the book of Deuteronomy. If you have your Bible, open up there. We're going to live there today. And his hearers, everyone he's speaking to, is under the age of 60. Like, there, there's three people in the whole nation who are over 60. And one of them is Moses. The other two are Joshua and Caleb. Everyone else has died 
off from that earlier generation, which means everyone he's talking to is a wanderer. They, they have largely and only known a life of wandering in the wilderness. They've never had a home of their own. They've never had a farm, a city, anything to be in, a place to call their own. They're used to picking up, and they're on the precipice of invasion. They're getting ready to push into the land, and their wandering is about to end. And you would think that there would just be anticipation, excitement, but there's also some fear. You see, this, the manna that used to come and feed them is gone. The fire, the column of fire that used to lead them has departed. In the past, it's not been easy. In fact, they've complained a lot about the past. And when they look ahead to the future, it doesn't look as bright as it sounds like to us. It looks pretty hard. And I want to bring you into the end of Moses' first sermon. We're going to look at the tail end, the conclusion of his, last, of his first sermon to Israel uh, in Deuteronomy. And so if you're in your Bible, flip over to chapter 4 of Deuteronomy, and I'm going to have you stand up. We're going to begin at verse 20, and we're going to stand for the reading of God's Word as just I read the next uh, few verses here. So Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 20, stand up. It's actually picking up just before where we're really going to lead in, and it just recounts the history here. Verse 20, But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace from Egypt to be a people for his own possession as today. <clears throat> Verse 21, Now the Lord was angry with me on your account and swore that I would not come across the Jordan and that I would not enter the good land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. For I will die in the land. I shall not cross the Jordan, but you shall cross and take possession of this good land. So watch yourselves that you do not forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you, and make for yourselves a graven image in the form of anything against which the Lord your God has commanded you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Verse 25. Now when you become the father of children and children's children and have remained long in the land... And act corruptly and make an idol in the form of anything. And do that which is evil in the sight of the Lord your God, so as to provoke him to anger. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today, that you will surely perish quickly from the land where you are going over the Jordan to possess it. You shall not live long in it, but will be utterly destroyed. Skip down to verse 30. When you are in distress and all these things have come upon you, in the latter days you will return to the Lord your God and listen to his voice. For the Lord your God is a compassionate God. He will not fail you nor destroy you nor forget the covenant with your fathers which he swore to them. Father, we pray that we would take seriously the words which Moses spoke long ago, that we would hear... <clears throat> what you intended for them to apply, and that we would apply it to our own lives, and that we would fear you more. We ask this in your son's name. Amen. All right, here's, you can sit down. Here, here is what we just read. Israel's going to go into the land, Moses is going to die, and God should be feared. God is going to hold truth to his promises to Israel. He is going to provide for them, and he's willing to judge them. He will remember them, and he will hold them to his word. And at this point, 
the way the nation would hear what Moses said would make those 40 years of wandering seem not so bad. It would seem pretty good because the future looks a lot more perilous. What we just read has no ifs in it. Everything that Moses describes is that this will happen. This will happen. You will perish. You will be destroyed. You will be scattered. There, there's no ifs at all in here. He's calling them to obedience and he's warning that the future is a lot tougher than it appears perched on the edge. And in the section we're going to focus on, what he's just going to share with them is three truths that they need to remember when the future look, looks tough. Three truths that we need to remember when the future ahead looks cloudy and hard. Verse 32 to 40 is the conclusion of his first sermon. And this is Moses' greatest declaration of God's character and work that he makes in the Bible. This is by the guy, this is amazing, this is by the guy who stood before the burning bush, the guy who saw the Ten Commandments etched in stone by God's hand, the, the man who saw the tail end of God's glory, the man who spoke regularly with God as with a friend, a man who knows God better than almost anyone, a man who wants Israel to do well, who wants them to prosper in the land, a man who knows the bents of the human heart, who knows how prone we are to wandering, a man who didn't even make it into the promised land himself. So he calls Israel to know these truths, to live by them, especially as the times ahead may seem difficult. First thing we see is that, uh, that our God is unique, utterly unique. Our God is utterly unique. That's the first thing that Moses reminds them of, and he does it by asking four questions about their former days. He asks them to consider their history. Uh, this is in verses 32 to 35, and you can look at it in the text. He says, Indeed, ask now concerning the former days which were before you, since the day that God created man on the earth, and inquire from one end of the heavens to the other. Has anything been done like this great thing, or has anything been heard like it? Has any people heard the voice of God speaking from the midst of the fires? You've heard it and survived. Has a God tried to go to take for himself a nation from within another nation by trials, by signs and wonders, by war, by a mighty hand and by an outstretched arm, by great terrors, as the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes? To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord, he is God, there is no other besides him. Moses asked them just to consider their history to look back on it. He asked Israel to look back, to think if they know of anything in all the world, if they've even heard rumors of anything similar that's happened to another nation. If you just think back to where Sean left off, you have after the flood, the three sons of Noah beginning to spread out and populate the earth. That, that's verses 10, chapters 10 and 11 of Genesis. Chapter 12 spotlights this one man, Abram. Said to be, again, the descendant of Shem, traces his lineage. He's living in, uh, he's a Chaldean, he's living in Chaldea. He lives particularly in Ur, and God just chooses him. There, there's nothing in the text that says why God chose him. No reason given. It just shines the spotlight onto Abram. And God promises to make a nation of him. To make his name great, to give him a land to bless the whole world through him. And from that point, the story of the Bible focuses in on Abram and his descendants. 
from, from Abram, who would be called Abraham. Then the, the spotlight moves to, we see Ishmael, who's born of him, who becomes the father of all the Arab nations. We see Isaac, who's born of him, who becomes the father of the Jewish nation. Isaac then becomes the father of Jacob, who would be known as Israel. Uh, he then has 12 sons, one of whom gets a Broadway show. Uh, and then, sorry, old joke. Uh, and then uh, those 12 sons become 12 tribes, right? And they develop into those tribes now. They're taken in to Egypt. Those tribes are preserved by God's sovereign work. They're led to Egypt where they flourish and grow from large families into a nation. Million plus strong. Eventually, in fact, their numbers alarm the rulers of Egypt so much that they subjugate and enslave them because they're afraid that they will take over the nation. And despite their enslavement, they continue to grow more numerous. And it's into this environment that Moses is born. That's the author of Deuteronomy. As an old DreamWorks film shows, Moses is raised in Pharaoh's household as a prince of Egypt, though he's a Jew. And he, only once he's run away, hears the voice of God. And it's been hundreds of years since God has spoken to any man. And yet he appears to, to Moses, he tells him to go back, and he returns to lead Israel out of their captivity in Egypt, for their enslavement in Egypt, through signs, through trials, through, through uh, plagues, he gets Pharaoh to relent and agree to release Israel for a time. Pharaoh's heart quickly hards afterwards. He pursues him with the army. You know the story how the Red Sea collapses on the army after uh, Israel passes through. And uh, then Israel takes a day to worship and then starts making their way to the promised land. It is at this time... They're not entirely happy. They're already kind of grumbling about life on the road. But they keep going, and they make their way to the promised land, and there they send 12 spies, one from each tribe, into the promised land to spy it out. Spies report, eh, not so good. They say, oh, this is an amazing land. There's a lot of people here. And the, the, the warriors, they're massive. There's no way, that's the report from 10 of the spies, there's no way we're going to take this place. We don't, we don't really even have weapons, guys. Like, we're not going to take this place. It would be better, well, it would be better for us to kill Moses, appoint a new leader, and go back to Egypt and be slaves. That's actually their game plan. Two guys speak against it, Caleb and Joshua. They're the two who dissent. They're the two who, <laughs> because well, I should say, what happens after this discussion and after the plan is to say, we're not doing that, is the glory of God descends, fills the temple, and God pronounces judgment upon the whole nation. Moses intercedes, and God then determines to only kill those who are age 20 and older, only the fighting men, only those who had a vote, uh, who are allowed, uh, who would have been allowed to enter the promised land. And so he pronounces this judgment, and he then consigns them to wander for 40 years. Jacob and, uh, sorry, Jacob, let's see who, I got to get through my J's. Joshua and Caleb are preserved, and Moses, everyone else who's over the age of 20 would die in the wilderness. And so for the next 40 years, they march and wander through the wilderness with 50 plus people, sometimes more than 2,000 dying in a day, each day, uh, as they travel. That's this really short version of the history which Moses is calling to their mind as he asks them, 
do you even know how unique your God is? Do you, do you even know how utterly unique the one who has redeemed you is? Do you know of a God who has sustained a million people for 40 years in the wilderness with no city or farmland? Do you, do you know of a God who's allowed you in the, like the last couple months to conquer all the land that surrounds us right here without really having any weapons? Like, do you, do you know of anyone who's done things like that? Have you heard of anything like this happening? Have, have you even heard stories of it? That's the first two questions in verse 32. And then he says, do you know anybody else who's heard the voice of God the way you have? That's verse 33. Do you know, do you know of any other God who's taken a nation out of a nation before? Verse 34. All of them expect the answer of no. See, there's no one like him. Right, that, that's, that's what's said in verse 35. That's the, the crux, the core, the center. This is the truth that all of those questions are driving out is verse 35 of chapter 4 where he says, to you it was shown that you might know that the Lord, Yahweh, he is God. There is no other besides him. In other words, all these things happen so that you would know your God is unique. He's utterly unique. There's no other beside him. You're about to enter a promised land where there's false gods all around you. And you're going to be tempted to worship and to go after them and to think that they're great. And you need to be convinced that your God is utterly unique. He's powerful. He's active. He's engaged in a way that's without compare. This is the only way to stand firm. It's the only way to look into the future with confidence when it looks not so good. To know that your God will not suffer competitors. There's no one who is like him. He alone can be trusted and he's proven himself time and again. This is the first truth that Moses calls Israel to fix in their hearts. It's a truth we need to fix in our hearts. Because it's pretty easy to look around the world today and feel a bit hopeless. Our, our government's a train wreck. Like our, our culture affirms evil and hates good. All around us are Really, we're just surrounded by people who worship other gods. Whether it is technology or comfort or pluralism or money or sex or self, whatever it is, there's very few who affirm the one true God when there is no other. It's easy to have your heart ensnared by another God. Most people recognize it on their deathbed. In the biography of uh, Steve Jobs, the maker of the iPhones many of us carry, talks about how on his deathbed he looked back and he realized that the time and energy he'd poured into work, he looked at with regret. He declared his kids were 10,000 times better than anything I've done. And he regretted his excessive work on family, that came, or on work, his excessive time spent to one work that really cost him relationships with family and friends. And he didn't ever find the true God. But most people only recognize their idols as they approach eternity. They only recognize at that point that their false God wasn't worthy of their worship and wasn't ever going to give the things that were promised. Our God is utterly unique. He alone is God. There's no other. There's no one worthy of our worship. There's no one who can satisfy us. There's no one who can provide for us. There's no one with real power to act and to change things. There's no one who loves you the way that he does. There's no one who's willing to die for you the way that he did. There's no one who wants a real relationship with you in the same way. Our God is utterly unique. That's the truth Moses tells Israel and us. 
It's a truth that grounds you when the future looks hard. Next thing he says is that our God is completely in charge. Our God is completely in charge. Verses 36 to 38, after those four questions he just gave to show the uniqueness of God, then he basically gives five descriptions that show the absolute sovereignty of God in all of Israel's history. Look at verse 36. He says, Out of the heavens he lets you hear his voice to discipline you, and on earth he lets you see his great fire, and you heard his words from the midst of the fire. Because he loved your fathers, therefore he chose their descendants after them. And he personally brought you from Egypt by his great power, driving out from before you nations greater and mightier than you, to bring you in and to give you their land for an inheritance as it is today. To to men who are about to enter into a land, who've just been wandering, to, to women who've never known a home, who've never had a place of their own, Moses wants them to remember, all to remember, God is 100% in control. God is 100% in control. In every part of their history, as a nation, God has been the one acting. This is why, if you remember, like, grammar from when you were really young, there's, like, subject, verb, object, right? So subject, he, verb, hit, object, the ball. He hit the ball. When you look at this, Every subject of every action, every verb, every subject, the the first word, God. He did this. He did this. He did this. He did this. That's this whole section. There's five different God did this for you. God did this for you. God did this for you. It's it's what defines this part of it. The, The whole point Moses is making to them is God has been in charge. God has been doing this. God has been entirely committed to you. I know the future hasn't it won't be easy. I know the past hasn't always been easy. You are going to be tempted. In fact, you're eventually going to slide into disobedience. Moses says that. You're going to be enslaved again, but God remains committed to you. He will be your God no matter what. And he reminds them of five ways that he's already showed his love to them. The first two, verse 36, uh, he said, he lets you hear his voice to discipline you. He lets you see his Fire. These both point back to Mount Sinai at the giving of the law, Exodus 19 and 20. Just, that pause was just to let you breathe for a minute in case you were kind of catching up to what we just were. So where we are, he's talking about Mount Sinai now. When Moses gave the law, and at this point, and this is crazy, like um, there's a mountain, Mount Sinai. God descends onto this mountain. Israel sees it and knows it's God. And this, you, you should read Exodus 19 and 20. It's amazing. This is at the giving of the law. They are terrified. They want n- no part of being close to what's going on on that mountain. Verse, chapter 19, verse 18 of Exodus, Exodus 19, 18. It says, now Mount Sinai was all in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. And its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace. And the whole mountain quaked violently. And what you read in Exodus chapter 20 Moses and Aaron are sent up there, and the people get as far away. They're trembling. They're frightened. They, they are keeping their distance because they know God is there, and that they know that they need an intermediary. They need a mediator. They ask Moses, you go talk to him. We cannot, we cannot hear his voice. We'll die. You go talk to him, and you be his voice to us. We can hear you. 
Moses responds in Exodus 20, 20. He says, don't be afraid for God has come in order to test you in order that the fear of him may remain with you so that you may not sin. In verse 36, when he says he lets you hear his voice to discipline you, this is exactly what it's talking about. He let him hear the voice. They let, God let him hear his voice so that they would fear him and not sin. All right, parents, this is what we do. This is the goal of every time we discipline, right? This is a father's discipline to correct so that they would not sin. Like that, that's, what, that's what's happening here. Moses, then he, he moves even further back in history. He reminds them of two more ways that God has shown his love and power. Verse 37, we see this amazingly sweet picture. One of the earliest and most clear Old Testament passages on the doctrine of election, on God's choosing those whom he loves. And this is Deuteronomy 4.37. It says, because he loved your fathers, therefore he chose their descendants after them. Because he loved your fathers, therefore he chose their descendants after them. In other words, God is going to remain faithful to Israel because he set his love on them. Deuteronomy 7.7 expands this. It's great. It basically says, uh, you were the runt of the litter and I loved you. There was nothing attractive about you. You were the weakest of the nations. There, there was nothing that made me love you. I loved you as a choice. I loved you out of my own will. Not because of what you did, but by my choice alone. They were not his people because, uh, because they had received the law. They were not his people because he had rescued them from Egypt. They were not his people because they had followed, them, followed him in the wilderness. There was nothing that they did that made him love them. They were his people because he had chosen Abraham and to love Abraham and therefore to love Abraham's kids, to love his descendants. God was committed to them because he'd chosen to love them. Surveying the room, most of you are wed, married, looks like, or at least have been to a wedding, would be my hunch. I've done weddings. One thing that you see in every wedding is the wedding vows, Right? I, state your name, no kidding, uh, so uh, I, you know, so-and-so take this man, woman to be my lawfully wedded wife, to have and to hold in sickness and health, for richer, for poorer, you probably had better vows than that, so-and-so, till death do you part. And when you're prompted by that, by the preacher, you respond with, I'm glad some of you did actually respond, right? You, in the wedding, for sure you said it. Okay. This is a vow. It's a volitional commitment of love, right? Now, we're human and we fail at it. Some days are harder to stay married than others, but, but it is a commitment, an expression of commitment, a decision to love. And that is what's being described here when we talk about God's choosing to save us. It's his volitional commitment, his decision to love others. His love is the result of his choice of us. Uh, Ephesians chapter 1 describes it in a similar way. It says, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him, in love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. God chooses us and he chooses to love us. Before the foundation of the world, God has been completely in charge He's working all things together for his glory. He's completely in control of everything. And he's committed to those whom he loves. Which is the 
the truth Israel needs. It's the truth we need. As you look ahead, you don't know how many more months ahead you have in life. As you look to the future and you're not sure where money is coming for next month. As you look at a loved one, you see them destroying their life and hurting those who love them. This truth allows us to face an uncertain future with strength and with confidence. God, our God, is in control completely in control. Moses ends this, he's just reminding them that their escape from Egypt, the victories they've already achieved, the coming conquest, it was all going to be due to God's involvement, his personal involvement with them. That's verse 38. He says, you stand here right now entirely because God is in charge, not because of what you've done, but because of God's work. And this whole passage, this whole 36 to 38 block is this this amazing declaration that our God is in charge of everything, that he's going to be the one who makes sure they have a future. And to us as Christians, God's word says something really similar. Romans chapter 8 verse 32 says, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Our God is completely in charge. And he's completely committed to those whom he loves. He's committed to you. So the safest choice we can make is to to depend and obey. To entrust ourselves to him. To the one who will never leave us or forsake us. To the one who is entirely committed to his children. Because when when you look at your Bibles, you're going to see that there's one truth that's at the center of all of this. We already read it in verse 35. It shows up again in verse 39. We saw the other uniqueness of God in the first three verses. We saw the complete control of God in the second three verses. But the presupposition, really the the core message of all of this is found in verse 35 and in verse 39. Remember, you saw it in 35. He said, to you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God and there's no other beside him. Then you read verse 39 where Moses repeats it. Know therefore today and take it to your heart that the Lord, he is God in heaven above and on the earth below. There is no other. This is the the one major command in the whole passage at the conclusion of his whole sermon. Know that the Lord, our God, is God alone. Know that our God is God alone. Know that he is God in heaven above. Right, He's transcended. He is above everything. He is, exists apart from the world and above the world. He's not part of the universe, but he's higher than, than it all, and he's greater than it all. He rules over all of it, even, even over the spiritual realm. He is God of heaven above, and he's God of earth below. He's eminent. He's present. He's active. He is involved in the world. He's not a clockmaker who set things in motion and then just walked away, but he knows the number of hairs on your head. He knows the food that the birds need and when one drops in the forest he knows the needs that every person has there's nothing hidden from his sight he sustains all of life here he's the god on earth below this is the truth that moses calls israel to take to heart this is the truth i think god wants us to take to heart our god is god alone there's a million false gods available to you They're everywhere. We're surrounded by them, each promising to make you happy. Spend enough money, you can get an Apple Vision Pro whenever it comes out and escape into a world of VR where all your needs can be met. You can get a car that promises to drive you. You can 
fill your bank account with more money than your kids could spend. You can spend your days uh, on alcohol, your nights on porn. All of these things promise to satisfy you, to make you happy, to give you what you need, right? That's the lie of movies, of YouTube, of TikTok, that they are going to satisfy you, that they're going to make you happy, that, that by following them and doing what they advocate or sell, that your life is going to be better, it's going to be improved, it's going to be happy. Psalm 1611, though, says that only God satisfies. It says, in your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand, there are pleasures forever. There's more pleasure available in God. Moses knew this. There's more pleasure available in him than anything else that we can find in this life. And the problem is, is we're too easily satisfied. And Moses wants them and us to know there is only one who is going to satisfy you. There is no other. There is no other God. Our God is God alone. Moses knew God in a way that few men ever have. He wants this embedded in your heart. He says, know it today. Take it to heart. The Lord is God. There is no other. And if this is true, if this is true, then verse 40 is where we live. You should keep his commands. You should keep his commands. Right? That, that's what it says in verse 40 there. Just read it. So... You shall keep his statutes and his commandments, which I'm giving you today, that it may go well with you and with your children after you, and that you may live long on the land which the Lord your God is giving you for all time. This is the same thing we've heard in the New Testament, right? The Apostle John says, 1 John uh, chapter 5, verse 3, this is the love of God that you keep his commandments. Jesus would say this to his disciples. He said in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, right? This is just a concept that's bound together. If you love him, you will obey him. A heart that knows and loves God will want to obey his word. Sin is rooted in unbelief. Whenever you choose to sin, in that moment, what you're saying is, I don't really right now believe that the God of the Bible is the God who will satisfy me, the one who is truly in charge. Instead, me giving vent to my anger, that is what is going to see change happen. Instead, me pleasing myself or pleasuring myself is the only path to my happiness. There's no other way. Our obedience to God is it's intimately connected to knowing and loving God. And if you don't want to obey, Scripture says you, you probably don't know the one who you claim. I, I, uh, that, that, that's Moses' big idea, that if you know him, you will obey him. If you know him, your life will go well. Moses is pushing Israel towards obedience to God, to living in a way that's pleasing to him. I heard a pastor recently who um, was contrasting Moses and Jesus really, really wrongly. He said, uh, he said, Moses gave us the law about giving sacrifices for God. Jesus brought the truth that God sacrifices for us. Now, a lot of what he said in that message was wrong, but that concept of saying Moses just gave us the law is the part that stood out because I've been living in Deuteronomy. Because the promise Moses makes here is that obedience is going to bring blessing. Right? That, that's the blessing here. He says, listen, if you keep his statutes, it's going to go well with you. You're going to be blessed. Your kids are going to be blessed. You're going to live a long, a long time in the land. 
Moses just teaches that obedience brings blessing. We teach this to our kids. Parents, you would be so much happier if you just obeyed, right? You've said that probably as a parent. For sure you've thought I would be so much happier if they've just obeyed. But, but the reality is, is true. You, child, you will be so much happier if you just obey. Christian, you will be so much happier if you just obey God's word. That, that's what's being said here. Life goes well when you obey God's will. And the promise to Israel is that life is going to go well, and they will live long in the land if they just obey. And interestingly, it's kind of fun, just as an aside, you see at the very end of verse 40, it says you're going to live long on the land which the Lord your God is giving you for all time. Just one of those reasons why as a church we're premillennial, not postmillennial, or amillennial, is because there's this statement that says, you're going to live long on the land, not forever right now, but there's a future for you to go back on the land because this land that you're, he, the Lord is your God is giving you for all time. There's a promise of the land to Israel that's still to be granted, that though they conquered it and lived on it for a time, they never possessed it in full as they were promised it. And so there's this future fulfillment of the promise that even Moses here, I think, is anticipating, which is super cool, but totally off topic. So, uh, We should go back to obedience. Moses, Moses' desire is that God's people would obey their king, that they would walk with him. The sacrifices that we think about with the law, those were only needed when the people disobeyed, when they didn't follow what God had planned. The need for sacrifice began with Adam and Eve, and it was initiated by God where he makes the first animal sacrifice. He initiates that. The prescription of sacrifices in the law comes from God, not from Moses. He initiates again saying, here's how right now you can be reconciled when you disobey me. Here's how our relationship can be restored. And then what we have ultimately is God taking the initiative again on the cross where he sends his son to die for our sins. Every person knows that God exists. We we have the knowledge of God written into our hearts. We have the knowledge of right and wrong written onto our conscience. And, And you go through life by the time you're a teenager, for sure you know that you've done things that are wrong. Hands down, you know many, many times, the older you get, you know you've done things that are wrong. Everyone acknowledges and recognizes this fact and explains why so much of the world is broken all the time. The good news is that God took the initiative, that he sent his son Jesus Christ to live the perfect life that we never could, one that was perfectly pleasing to the Father amazing he permitted his son to be put to death on the cross and on the cross the father placed the full weight of his wrath onto his son for the sins of all who would believe and the sinless son willingly accepted that substitution granting to us who would believe his righteousness and accepting and removing our condemnation that is what the first sacrifice in the garden looked forward to That's what the sacrifice of every bull and goat and lamb looked forward to so that we would understand that when we fail to obey God, atonement is possible, reconciliation is possible by putting our faith in Jesus Christ.
So while our hearts are just prone to worship, they're made for worship. We are just as bent as Israel to wandering from God. Moses saw the future and its dangers, and he gave them instructions on how to push forward with faith and confidence by remembering your God, by remembering how utterly unique he is, by remembering that he is completely in charge and that he's committed to you, that he is God alone and that there is no other God, especially no other God who has set his love on you in the way that our Father has through his Son, Jesus Christ. So as you approach the future and you say, what am I going to do? And your heart is filled with anxiety and you're uncertain about the days ahead and you're not even sure about how to feel or what to do or what's going to happen. We can take to heart what's said here. Our God is committed to us. He is the one who deserves our worship. We can trust him in doing what's right because we know that he will work things out for his glory and our good. Father, we thank you for this time just to dig into your word a little bit today, to see some of the riches that are there for us in the Old Testament, to remember and recognize that you are the same yesterday and today and forever. We want to remain faithful to you. We recognize that our hearts are bent to wander, and we thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus Christ, the one who died and atoned for our sins the one who is our substitute, so that we could be reconciled to you. Lord, we have no other hope. We have no other God. We want to know the fullness of joy that comes from your presence. We want to experience the pleasures that are there forever from your right hand. We know that that comes through obedience, and most of all, through faith in knowing you as our Father and your Son as our Savior. Thank you, Lord, for the gift of life and every person who you've opened their eyes to know that truth. Lord, we pray that we would walk faithfully in, with you, not to be accepted by you at all, but as out of a heart of thankfulness one that is filled with joy, that lives to worship you in light of who you are and what you've done. We ask this in your son's name. Amen. Thanks for listening today. Sermon audio from the last three years is available by podcast, and a larger archive from Chris Mueller and Faith Bible Church can be found at media.faith-bible.net. And if you would, please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps a lot. Thanks, and have a great day.